the rest of you thought like Ben thought, it would be a better world. The awesome big man, well, here he is. Ushers, come forward if you would, please. And we'll share in our offering together this morning. Thanks for giving. I got a couple of things I just need to highlight. It is a busy time of year, as you know, all the announcements. A couple of things I just need to highlight. I'll do it real quickly for you. Today's a big day for two things. Number one, if you've never been baptized and, and you're, you say, I'm a follower of Jesus, then baptism should be a part of, part of your life. And you should be able to say, yeah, I did that. And we want, you, we want to make it as easy as we can for you to take that next step. This morning, we have all sorts of elders, leaders ready that you don't have to make an appointment. If you get done with the service, go to the welcome desk and say, hey, I'd like to talk to somebody about baptism. They're prepared right on the spot to you know, pull you aside, have a, cup, have a short conversation, talk about your walk with Jesus and for you to participate in our baptismal service happening in two weeks. We really want you to be a part of that. Um, you know, my wife through the years has always heard me say as we've traveled, I'll see some site, some restaurant, some place, and I go, oh, I want to be in the picture. And what that means is, you know, if you're standing there staring at it, you know, there's people inside, and I want to be in the picture. When it comes to the baptismal service we have, that whole experience, that celebration, that walking with Jesus, friends, very sincerely, don't be on the outside wishing you were in the picture. Take the step and get involved in that next step of saying, hey, I'm a follower of Jesus. I need to be baptized. We'll make it as easy as we can today. Stop by the welcome desk. Also today, three o'clock, we have our Discover class. If you ever wondered about the church, who we are, our mission, our background, what makes us tick, those kind of things. Um, we About three or four times a year, we have a Discover class that's happening today at three o'clock. Uh, you can come and learn about the church, bring your questions. If you've ever wanted to have a dialogue with me about something, come and, and be a part of that. Starts at three o'clock. We're always done by seven. We have a dinner break in there. The time actually goes very, very fast. We'd love to have you be a part of that. If you can sign up ahead of time and let us know you're coming, that's great. If at 2.30 you say, I think I'm going to go, just get in the car and come. We would love to have you here this afternoon from three to seven. Be a part of that if you, if you would. It's a, it's a great next step. Uh, I want to remind you specifically this service, even more than the first service. First service was full. Um, this one, of course, is packed. Some of you couldn't get seats. You're watching in the other room. Uh, I just want to remind you, November 12th, we add that third service. As we get ready for that, we do have a couple of needs. I'm just going to make, make you aware very quickly. We have a need in the nursery for nursery workers, and we have some need for coffee brewers. Early Sunday morning to get here and brew coffee. Neither one of these require a lot of commitment. Now, I always, I always hate having to make a pitch for people to serve saying, oh, it won't take you much. Uh, because the truth of it is, uh, we're in the body of Christ. We've got to just say, hey, where can I serve and, and how can I be a part of it? But we do need you to respond and serve. In the nursery, we need about 20 people, uh, new people to sign on. Some would say, oh, really, are we that short? Well, you need to remember something that we provide in our nursery and all of our children's ministries all the way through high school. We have a program called Safe Place that we go by. Safe Place is a, is a program to make sure your children are safe when they're in our care. What that means is there's no one-on-one, -on -one, one, one adult to one child or one adult to 10 or 15 child. Every, every time there's children in the room, there's at least two adults, usually three adults, especially young children. Someone's got to go to the bathroom. Someone's got to leave. There's always going to be two adults in that room. So you can just imagine when you make that commitment to make sure your kids are safe, it ups all the people that you need. We need about 20 people. Now, you don't have to be like this guy. Harley, stand up just real quick. Now... They don't even know why they're clapping for you yet. How long have you been working in the nursery? Got to be over 30 years. 30 years. Thank you, Harley. You can sit down. You can sit down. You're not getting any prize. Or just, you know, so. 
there's no big money here. I'm just, I'm just using an example. Very sincerely, Har- Harley has been serving in the nursery. He loves it. I had got a granddaughter. So my grandkids have all come through the church and, go, and been in, in with Harley. I got a granddaughter right now who can't wait to go see Mr. Harley. Um, and he serves in the nursery. One Sunday I was talking to Harley. I was talking about my granddaughter. He took his glasses out and he, see, he said, you see that mark right there? And he said, yep. He goes, that, that's a Remy mark right there. My, my granddaughter's name Remy. That's a Remy mark. I said, well, how'd that happen? Well, she sees me. She just runs and doesn't stop until I stop her. And he goes, and I stopped her. You know, head on, here we went. Listen, you, don't, you're, you can't be him. I mean, nobody can be, can, can be you, Harley. You, thank you. But you know what? You don't have to be him to step up and say, hey, once a month I can do this. Huge need there, that and coffee. Um, go to church center, it will, look for the It's You uh, logo and just click on it. It'll take you to the right pay, place and by all means participate. Uh, you heard about Fall Blitz. Our goal is to have every adult in the church participate in a short study for three or four weeks. Um, go online, participate in that. It will be well worth, well worth your journey. Now, oh man, baked goods, I like it. This card. This card talks about next weekend. I want to remind you, next weekend we have the, the, uh, the potter here, Michael Ferris, the journey to the potter's house. Last time we had him here years ago, the thing we heard from everyone was, oh, I wish I'd known how good he was. I wish I knew how powerful it was. I can think, uh, think of people that I would have invited, people I would have brought. Now you can invite them. Remember, please, we've got a Saturday night service and two Sunday morning services. The services will be identical. So you can come to either one. Please note, be on time. For some of you, this is very critical. Be on time. There's no, there's no worship happening because he gets the whole time. And the stage will be transformed. And he takes his artistry and pottery work along with his, his ability to speak and communicate as a counselor. An incredible presentation. Next Saturday night, Sunday morning, two times. Use the card, please. Invite folks to come and, and be a part of that uh, exciting uh, weekend. We're pretty excited about having Michael Ferris here. Final thing. This is good news and heartbreaking news. So Night to Shine is coming, as you heard, uh, heard in the announcement. Night to Shine registrations for people to come and, and participate, not just volunteers, but for our guests, opened on Saturday morning. And uh, first thing Saturday morning, it opened. By 3 o'clock, it was closed because we're full. We can take 85 guests, and we have 85 guests, and by 3 o'clock, we're into a wait list. Uh, Hannah, Hannah Lumen, who oversees it, sent a note that said, you know, and she lives for Night to Shine, and she oversees it all. She said this in her note. She says, so registration's open, and it was like Christmas. She said, watching the people sign up, and she said, the energy and the excitement is palpable. And then comes the heartbreak of 3 o'clock, when we have to close and say, we don't have any room. And she said, it is heartbreaking. Just so you know, we don't have like two or three in wait list typically. We have double. We can take 85 guests. We typically have 80 or more people on a wait list. So people have said to the years, well, why not go to a bigger venue? There's only two venues in the area that can handle our size. Because don't forget, every, every, every guest that comes, so 85 guests, they bring at least one or two other caregivers with them. So just say you use round numbers of 100, I got 100 guests. I've got another two to 300 people that come with them. So immediately you can see the issue that happens with size. On top of that, it takes 400, over 400 volunteers to be there and make it all happen. So two other sites are, are not available to us, and they're incredibly cost prohibitive. So please pray. Pray for those that weren't able to get in. Pray for us as we're going to sit down and say, is there any other alternative uh, that we can come up with or think of? Because it breaks our heart. But in, in, of course, as well, be praying for that night. 
um, and, by pray, and with praying, volunteer. Uh, 400 plus volunteers. We always have the volunteers show up, but we need you to show up and be a part of that night. So there's a lot there, I know, and uh, my, my appreciation for you being a little patient as we walk through all that. This morning, I want to wrap up our series. We've been talking about this theme of I Lost My Faith. It's a series for those who perhaps have that feeling that you've lost your faith. Perhaps someone has invited you in these past couple weeks because you've been in a conversation with them and you use the words, I've lost my faith. I used to believe. I I used to care about those things. I don't care anymore. So it's been for those folks who've lost their faith. But also a series for those that might be in a faith crisis moment. And if you're not now, you might find yourself in one where you're kind of going, ah, do I believe this? And you have a faith crisis. And it's also a series, quite honestly, to help people better understand, just in general, the Christian faith. If you're a solid believer, you're not wavering in your faith, but this gives you some, some foundation to say, that's what I believe and that's why. So we've been in this series together. Last week, we addressed a couple of things. We addressed the idea last week that Christianity is, in fact, unlike any other world religion. Although, even though we'll say that, there are a lot of similarities across all the world religions. In fact, C.S. Lewis wrote, we quoted him last week, he wrote down in one of his books, he said that he looked at all these world religions and found that there's at least eight common uh, commandments. Not ten commandments, but at least eight common commandments that every world religion would agree with and believe in. And so I, I would begin by saying, don't forget, there are similarities. And this, I point this out because of something that we learned a couple of weeks ago from the Apostle Paul. And what we learned from the Apostle Paul as, as he was speaking to the Greeks and the Romans was this. Christians don't have to and should not come across as arrogant, as if they had the answer and no one else does. Shame on us. We live in a culture today now with, in, the, in the faith world where Christians come across with an arrogance and we've lost our humility. That's happening not only in the, in, the, in the world of religion, happening in the world of politics. We've got people who have lost the simple humility. And specifically in the body of Christ, we've lost the humility that simply says, listen, it's a great story of grace. I'm a product of that grace. As opposed to starting off the conversation with, well, you're wrong. The Apostle Paul stood before the Greeks and the Romans, and they had so many out there belief systems, he could have started by saying, listen, you ignorant people, you. He started by saying, you know what, I look at your faith, I look at at what you, you believe, and man, I am moved by the fact that you are so committed to try to connect with God. And just so you know, friends, he meant it. In the conversation, he he meant it. When Jesus was on this earth and spoke with people, he gave them the absolute right to reject the message. And so I would just challenge us as we in our own lives conduct ourselves that we would learn that lesson that that people are seeking some of the right things that we should be affirming and not just working against. We also learned last week that one of the key things that religion does across the board, every world religion does the same thing, and that is that it exposes our inability to keep the rules. Every religion exposes our inability to get it right. You see, every single religion would say, this is what you're supposed to do, this is what you're not supposed to do. Everyone does that, and every person in those religions comes up and falls short. Everybody, I don't care who you are, I don't care what your faith system is, there's a rule that says, don't do this, and we do it. And the other rule says, whatever you do, you know, do this, and we don't do it. Not only do we fail God's standard, I mean, that's the bottom line, we fail God's standard. God says, here's the standard of holiness, and we blow it. But not only do we fail his standard, we fail our own standards. We let ourselves down. And we get to set the rules for us, and we still fail at our own rules. 
As you know, referee soccer, we're in the soccer season coming to an end. I had a game this past week, and I was refereeing the game. Good game, evenly matched, you know, contentious game, you know, 0-0, zero, zero, and two teams, two good teams. In fact, that was a, uh, the, the, the two teams that were in the championship last year are facing themselves this year, so I get to be a part of that. And it's a really contentious game, head-to-head, and the one team is just annoying me to no end. Just annoying every player. Every time you blow the whistle, they're going, what? They got their hands up. I got to tell you, I want to look at these kids. Do you think because you look at me and go like this, that I'm going to change my, my, my statement, my, my whistle? I was like, oh, wait, wait, wait. You know, you're right. Wait a minute. Let me go back and recorrect that. Every kid, every player, everything you blew, they questioned. If you didn't blow it, they're going, you got to be kidding me. You know, and, and I'm, so, I'm getting done. I'm a really patient guy. I've been doing this a long time. The coach is just annoying me because they're following his lead and he's just on the edge. You know, if he would say something, I would just jump on it. But he doesn't. He's doing this other stuff. And at one point, right in front of his bench, I'm standing right there. These two kids bang, they fall down. And he just stares at me. And I mean, plague moves away and goes away. He's still staring at me. Plays on this side. I'm looking over here and I can see he's just staring at me. And I got to tell you, it is just ticking me off. I turn back around and he's still staring. So I get close enough that we're about five feet. And I look at him and said, are you going to say something or just stare? He goes, did you see that play? I said, the one right in front of you? He goes, yes. I go, I did. In fact, I was standing 10 feet from it. I saw it from the beginning and I saw it to the end. There was no foul there. And I said, well, did I blow my whistle? <laughs> because that's what I do when I see a foul. I blow my whistle. And so I didn't blow my whistle. So there was no foul. I'm done with you. And I walked away. He was quiet the rest of the game. Now, if I told that story to a, bunch of, a room full of officials, they would go, yeah, one for our side. I walked away. I had 20 minutes left in the game. And I stood there going, why did you let him win? Why did you let him provoke you to do something that you know better than? You're better than that. You don't engage like that. So when the game's over, I go over to shake his hand and I say, I need to apologize because I barked at you. I acted so unprofessionally, and I have no right to do that. I don't care how annoying or ignorant you are, I have. (laughs) Okay, I I didn't say that, but I might have thought it. You see, my, my point is this. We can set our own standard, and I can tell you what. In that game, I said to myself, I'll never do that again. It's only a matter to the next game whether I fail my own standard again. So that's the piece we're learning is that every religion exposes our fact that we're failures, that we, have, that we do not have the ability to not sin. We don't have the ability to not hurt others. We don't have the ability in our lives to, to not lie. We, we, we can't be truthful. We, we don't have the ability to keep bad attitudes away. You see, it reveals this real tension that no matter how how hard we try, failure still happens and we can't fix us. Religion exposes the fact that we get it wrong and we can't fix it. We learned about the power of the law, the power of the law of sin and death, that where there's sin, something dies. 
When you sin against a spouse in a relationship, the relationship dies. But we also learn that because of Jesus Christ, there's a more powerful law in place. What we learn is this, that God has put, put a new law in effect, the law of the Spirit, which is the law of forgiveness and grace. It means when a person accepts Jesus Christ into their life, God takes the new law and puts it in place. And the new law is you're going to be forgiven and set free. No more guilt. You see, religion's answer to sin and religious systems' answer to failure is try harder, work harder, give more, serve more, you know, atone for your failure. You know, you got to pay off your guilt. Christianity's answer to sin and failure is Jesus Christ. That's the answer. And so there is this invitation to everyone in the world to accept Jesus Christ as their Savior, the supreme forgiver of mankind's sin. So Jesus sets people free. Now, with that great statement, let's talk about a couple more things that are kind of a, a tension piece with, with religion and what people have with Christianity. And we'll talk about this a little bit and then get into our, our couple verses this morning. A couple of sticking points for some people for the simple message of forgiveness and grace and eternal life. You have to admit you that you're a sinner and accept Jesus Christ. And when you do that, you will be forgiven. Forgiven with God and in right standing with God. Acknowledge that you're a sinner. Invite Jesus Christ into your life and experience forgiveness and grace. Now, there's a problem in that statement I just gave to you, which creates a lot of tension with people. And there's a couple of them. The first one that happens in there is that Christianity doesn't seem fair. If you've not heard this, I've heard it plenty. It's not fair. Christianity's not fair. You have to believe in Jesus. And so all of a sudden, it's too narrow. And what happens with this unfair, all of a sudden, these, these things begin to come into the question. What about people who've never heard about Jesus? What about them? Or people who just don't understand about Jesus? What about them? What about children who die before they're old enough to decide to follow Jesus? Or what about people who've just been raised in a lifestyle or raised in a home where they're just doing what they've been told and they've never heard the message of Jesus? Well, what about them? It seems unfair. And if you haven't thought that, you've heard that, I know. The thought that somehow Christianity is unfair. Um, Let's add to that another piece that we hear, and that is this. In that same statement, to experience forgiveness, to experience all that, the starting place is acknowledge that I'm a sinner. Acknowledge that I'm bad. Acknowledge that I don't get it right. Acknowledge that I'm a failure. Got to acknowledge that. And I have to tell you, in our culture today, that's a very uncomfortable feeling. In fact, we've been over backwards to make people feel like you're good, not bad. And so it's a very uncomfortable thing. It makes us feel uncomfortable. And so there's kind of the rub. And along with that, there's the other piece of it is it's almost too good to be true. And you know the statement, if it's too good to be true, it's not true. So here you go. You got Christianity's story. You got the story of Jesus. It seems unfair. And if it seems unfair, and if it seems uncomfortable, and if it seems too good to be true, then it must not be true. And so there's the tension and there's the reservation. In fact, here's how some people's thinking go. It goes like this. If there's a God that is somehow like he is portrayed as a good God and a kind God and a loving God, that it makes sense that a good and perfect God would somehow come up with a better and a more perfect system that is absolutely fair according to my standard of fairness. 
So that's kind of the, the tension that happens there. We think, well, if there's a good God and a loving God, certainly he'd come up with a plan that when that plan is kind of shown and laid out, I consider it to be fair and I look at it and I feel like maybe it's not fair. You know, God is perfect and good and loving. He should have a fairness plan according to how I see fairness. Anyone should look at it and go, well, that's absolutely fair. And that doesn't happen in Christianity. That's the feeling some people have. And while we're at it, it should have a plan that makes us feel comfortable, not uncomfortable. I mean, I, I, certainly God can come up with a plan where I don't have to feel bad about myself in order to be a part of the plan. And so the idea that Christianity seems narrow, it seems too constricted, it seems to leave so many people out, it seems to force us to believe things in our culture today that just politically are incorrect. And so it just can't be right. It's got to be wrong. But now notice something. I've used the word feels along the way. It feels unfair. It it, it feels like it's unfair to other people. It feels too narrow. It feels uncomfortable. I didn't talk about whether it's true or not. I need need to remind us that oftentimes the emotional thought process of what might be fair or not or comfortable or uncomfortable clouds the issue of whether it's just, is it true or not? And that's really the issue. Now, I hope you're kind of, kind of working with me here along the way, and I hope you're, you're tracking. If there is a God and he's good, then there would be some sort of message, it would seem, some system, some approach where it would feel absolutely fair and comfortable to anyone who would look at it. You just go, well, that's fair, and I feel good about it. That would be the statement. But the real question isn't, should it feel fair? And the real question shouldn't be, should it feel comfortable? The real question should be, well, is it true? Is it true? And when we talk about is it true, what is true? What is the true story, if you will? Now, a couple more thoughts here just before we look at our verses. We're just going to look at three verses, but a couple more thoughts. Now, part of the reason, and so thanks for kind of, kind of tracking with me because I really got to get this foundation laid. Part of the reason that we get hung up on this feeling of fair or uncomfortable is because I think it's because we really don't understand the power and the effect of sin. When we talk about sin, I have to be honest that it's kind of lost some of its punch, if you will. And so we really don't understand the power of it. Now, a part of this problem that we have, I get. I completely understand why we struggle a little bit with, this, with the intensity and the power of sin. Because the people that we all know and the people that we all hang out with, the people that we spend time with, we're all the same. They're all fall short people. I mean, we're all the same. We don't get it right. We all fail, all those things. The problem is that I don't know any perfect people. The problem in comparison is I don't hang out with any perfect people. I only hang out with other failure people. I I mean, I hang out with you people. (laughs) And so the problem is I don't hang out with perfection, so I have something to compare it to. I only have us to compare it to. Oh, sometimes, admittedly, sometimes we have a moment like the soccer game where I blow it and I get it wrong and I feel bad and you feel bad and you go back later and you kind of make it right. And, and, and admittedly, when we do that, anybody tell the story, I kind of go, well, it's not horrible. You know, that moment wasn't horrible. In fact, many of you would say, well, it really isn't sin. You know, you just made a mistake in the moment. And so, and quickly I would say, yeah, I like that. I, I agree with you. I feel better about myself. And then what happens is, though, I get past a soccer game and I watch the news. And I see that there's really horrible things happening evil things innocent people who lose their lives children 
grandparents, a judge, president of a Jewish synagogue. And I watch that, and there are horrible things that people do, horrific acts that people commit against other people, completely unjust and just unfathomable. And, and we see it, and it bothers us, right? To the place where a lot of us don't even want to hear it or see it or watch it because it bothers us. And then we say this, we say, oh, no, well, where did that come from? What's wrong with them? And I, please know, I, no one really does this, but there is a hidden piece where I go, when I say what's wrong with them, you, just so you know, we're saying we're not them. When I look at someone's bad behavior and I go, well, look at what they did, it's clearly they. It's not me. And so I kind of insulate myself from it a little bit. And here's how many of us think. Yeah, there's some really evil in the world and really evil people, and they do evil things in the world. But that's the exception. That's kind of the exception. In reality, we're, we're not all that bad. Maybe a little fractured and, and maybe a little adjustment would be needed. Certainly God could come up with a plan. Now, we've thought this. And if you haven't, I guess I'm the only one. Certainly God could come up with a plan, a way to deal with the really, really evil in the world. The really evil people. And for the rest of us, he could just find a way to do a little patch-up, a little band-aid, a little adjustment for us along the way. So we think that we're better than the evil in the world that we see. Now, please know, I'm going to say this in the right way, you are better in some ways. Meaning this, I don't think any of you are going to go out and be a mass serial killer and do some of the horrible things we see. So, uh, so I get that. That's not, that's not who you are. That's not where you're going to head. I get that. But you have to ask the question sincerely, but where does that evil come from? See, here's the problem I have, and I think you'll probably agree. When you talk about where the evil comes from, where is it that you draw the line between really evil and evil? What's the line between really evil and evil and just bad? What's the line between bad and really bad? You see, the problem comes where I can't make, I can't figure out that line. I kind of know where it's too far, and I know what perfection looks like, but I got to tell you, in between, I can't tell you where to draw that line. So the truth is, what makes us really uncomfortable is that we can't explain away the truly evil in the world, and we can't figure out where to draw the line as to where it stops and starts. All we know is this, there really is evil in the world, and I feel better about myself at some levels because I'm not over there on the really evil side. Now, when we do that, um, people don't look so bad. When I look at the really evil in the world and we're not them, the stuff that we have around us just doesn't look that bad. But the truth is this, we are all sinners. That's the truth. How bad are we? Well, we're bad enough that in our culture today, you don't hear the word sin very often, right? In fact, we prefer to call it a mistake. It's not that I sin, it's that I mistake. I miscalculated, I made a mistake. Now, let's just be clear real quickly, because, I mean, often we just say, yeah, I made that mistake. I remember that in my life, I had that huge mistake. Let's be really clear. A mistake is when you take really dark blue, blue jeans that haven't been washed before and you wash them with white sheets. That's a mistake. A mistake that no one should be held personally accountable for if one were to do that. That's not sin, that's a mistake, okay? Got it. 
Listen, having an affair on your spouse, that's not a mistake. That's sin. A mistake is I was doing my checkbook and I added wrong. That's a mistake. Stealing from your boss is sin. Cheating on your taxes is sin and maybe a crime. You see, what happens is we don't like the idea of sin because it makes us feel very uncomfortable. We prefer to think, well, I just make mistakes. That feels better. So now here we go as we start getting into today. Now listen carefully. But what if, what if all the world religions are, are, are right? And specifically, what if Christianity is right? And what if there is a God who has set a standard and we can't keep that standard? He gives us a set of rules. And what if there's a God who is absolutely offended because he says, I'm holy. And in order for us to be together, you have to be holy. Here's the rules and you break them all. What if there is a God who is really in that place that says you've broken all the rules? You know what happens if that's true? The one, the one thing we do not want to be in place, we do not want that God to have a fair system. Just think about it. At that point, I don't want fairness. Because you see, and be, because the reason we don't want that is because we all know the, the real system, how it works in our world. Here's how the system works in our world. You break the rule, you pay the price, Right? I mean, that's how laws, that's the laws of our state, laws of our county, laws of our country, laws in the world. If you break the rule, you pay the price. We understand that. Just so you know, friend, if you have that sense inside of you of justice, like you've been wronged, and because you've been wronged, you feel like there should be a price to be paid, that's the thumbprint of God in your life. The, God, the thumbprint of God is justice, which says, if you wrong, you break the rule, you should pay the price. So go back to that statement. <laughs> If there really is a God who is genuinely offended by our behavior because we fall short and God says there is a standard and you have failed, the last thing we want that God to be is fair, right? What do we want him to be? Gracious. We want him to be merciful. We want him to be forgiving. Fairness is the last thing in our mind because if God's going to be fair, we're in trouble. You see, this is the message The message of Jesus Christ, which makes the message so remarkable, is because the story of Jesus is not fair and it's not comfortable. In fact, it's not fair or comfortable on purpose. The reason that it's not comfortable is that sin requires death to appease it, to pay the price. Is it fair? No. Is it comfortable? No. But it is absolutely true. So with that backdrop, I want to get three verses Three verses and we'll wrap up our series. Don't worry about the timing. It doesn't take long to go through these verses. Here we go. Romans 5, 6 through 8. You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He starts with the statement. He says, so you see, when you were still powerless. You know why we were powerless? Because until Jesus came on the scene, all we had were rules in which to live by. And we can't keep the rules. 
So he says, while you're still powerless, where you're still trying to get it right and you can't get it right. He starts with that statement. We are powerless to fix our relationship with God. We're powerless to deal with our past. We are powerless to fix ourselves. We can't fix ourselves. So he says, well, you're still powerless in all of that. He says, Jesus Christ came and died. Notice the word, died for the ungodly. Make sure you get the word ungodly. You see, so many people see churches as these nice little godly clubs. They see the church as these nice clubs of the people who consider themselves to be godly, the godly group. I've had so many people through the years, hey, you had to come to church from now. I say, oh, if I walk into that church, the roof will fall in. I go, why is that? Because you don't know my life. I go, I know, but I know how well the roof is built. It will not fall in, I promise. But that's the thought process because the church is the place for the godly people. I can do a quick survey and say, ask you this question. So here's the question. Ask the average person. So do you consider yourself to be ungodly? Do you consider yourself to be ungodly? Now, you're in church, so we already know the right answer, so you're going to go absolutely ungodly. But let's say you're out of the street, you're not in church. You say, are you ungodly? For most people, they're going to ponder that for a little bit, and they're kind of go, well, compared to the really ungodly people I know, uh, no, I don't think I am. And see, it goes like this, our thought process. We go look at it this way. Well, compared to the late Billy Graham... Compared to Mother Teresa, you know, those are really godly people. And then we would say it like this. Well, compared to them, I'm not as godly as they are, but I'm certainly, I'm not ungodly. I don't act ungodly. Paul said that God sent his son to die for the ungodly. And you think to yourself, well, I don't really act ungodly. It isn't about how you act. It's about who you are. Okay, I take that back. That's too pointed. It's not about how I act. It's about who I am. And who I am is I can't keep the standard. You see, if you're going to answer the question, are you ungodly, then don't compare yourself to the person beside you. Don't compare yourself to the person across the way that you can see. If you're going to answer the question, am I ungodly, who do you compare yourself to? One person. God. He's the standard. But I love this. He said, listen, but while you are still trying to get out of this mess and you can't, Jesus died for the ungodly, which means he died for every single one of us. There is no godly. Verse 7, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. Paul adds in there, he says, rarely. Now, notice he doesn't say never. He says rarely. He says it could happen, but rarely will someone give up their life purposefully for the sake of another person. Now, I can tell you this right now. I would give up my life in a moment for my wife or my children or my grandkids. And most of you would say without a hesitation, absolutely, I would put my life on the line for my family without thinking twice. Even with that, Paul would be be right to say, but still, rarely. And if take the family quotient out, rarely will someone deliberately say, I don't know this person, but I think he's a good person. I think I'll substitute my life for theirs. So Paul says, it could happen, but rarely does it happen. And then he comes into verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
But God demonstrates his love. So what that means is this. God's making a comparison. He says, now when you look at it, you say, I would lay down my life for somebody else. And he says, you probably would, but it would be rare, a pretty exceptional case. And it certainly wouldn't be for the bad person, if you will. But then God says this, but in your love, yes, you might give up your life for a son or a daughter, husband, family, or whatever. That's your love. But in my love, while you were yet sinners, ungodly, shaking your fist at God, Jesus Christ died for us. He didn't die for the godly. He died for those who reject him. He died for those who would shake their fist at God and say, I will have nothing to do with you. And yet, while you're still doing that, Jesus Christ dies for us. You might die for a good person, but God says, but my son would die for the bad person, for all the ungodly. Jesus Christ, through his father, makes this decision that Jesus Christ would die not for righteous people, not for the religious club people, not for the godly people, but for the ungodly, the people who fall short, the sinful people. Is that fair? No. It was not fair for him. Was it comfortable? Nope, not for him. Is it true? We believe it to be absolutely true. In fact, I would contend to you It makes perfectly good sense when you take an honest look and look at your own inability to fix you and to have a God who says, I can do that. I can fix it through my son. Here's the amazing thing about Christianity. Christianity is a story where God decided to not be fair. God decided to not be fair. In fact, what he decided to do is go beyond fair. That's what he decided God decided not to try to create a comfortable system because there is no comfortable fix for a broken world. It's not possible. It's impossible. Sin is bad enough that there had to be a death. Somebody had to die to atone for sin, and God made the decision he'd make the sacrifice, not you. So God decided to send his son to do the uncomfortable thing, to do the unfair thing in order to fix this unfair uncomfortable, broken world. Going way beyond fair as he extends grace and mercy and forgiveness to any and to all the ungodly people. So listen carefully. I would contend that Christianity is the most fair and comfortable system that you will ever ever find. Why? Because first of all, everyone gets in the same way. Everyone gets in the same way. Everyone meets the requirements. Everyone meets them, and everyone is welcome. Christian, Jews, Hindus, Muslims, Buddhists, red, yellow, black, white. It doesn't matter if you have great money or wealth. It doesn't matter your bloodline, your ethnicity. It doesn't matter what language you speak. It doesn't get any fairer than that. Christianity is absolutely fair where it says everyone, anyone, anyone gets in the same way. You all have the same invitation, but there's the rub. The invitation Jesus says is, well, I'm the way. So you get in by following me. And some will say, that's it right there, Scott. That's the narrow part. That's too narrow, too closed. No, the fairness of Christianity is that no one is better and no one is worse. 
Absolutely fair. Everybody gets in the same way. No one gets in because of who they know and the good deeds that they could do or the money they could pay off. Nope, it doesn't work that way. It's not a matter of keeping 8 out of 10 commandments or 10 out of 10 commandments or 600 out of 600 commandments or 2 or whatever the case. It's not a matter of keeping them. Everybody gets in the same way. Everyone gets in through Jesus Christ. Now, you do know that the Jesus part is the part of the story where people have a problem. I've heard people through years of talking to them say things like this. Well, Scott, here's the problem. It's that, it's that Jesus part that's the problem. I like the God part. I like the fact there's a God and he sees everything. I even like the creator part. I like that. I like the take, love your kids part. I like that, that, you know, like that, that kind of the commandment. I love to take care of the elderly and honor your parents. I kind of like that part. I love the music. It's very redeeming. I love it. I love the atmosphere when I walk in. It's very energetic. You know, I love the, uh, you know, the awesome big guy speaking up front. I like that piece too. I like that. But it's that Jesus part. That's the part that bothers me. Friends, the question isn't, is the Jesus part fair? And the question isn't, is the Jesus part comfortable? The question is, is the Jesus part true? And I can tell you, I, my, this is my story. At one point, I sat down and read every religious thing I could find. And I have to be honest, I got done and I said, the Jesus part doesn't want to make sense. It answers the questions I don't have answers for. Now, it may not seem fair, may seem uncomfortable, but everyone gets in the same way and everybody is welcome. And the requirement, because everyone meets the requirements, and the requirement is not keeping X number of commandments. The requirement is not that you have to continually ask God for forgiveness and to atone for your sins. The requirement is not that you have to do good. Promise that you're going to do good. And then when you do fail, you're going to try to do better next time. That's not the requirement. The requirement is not to miss church every week. Though you shouldn't miss church every week. But that's not the requirement. The requirement is not to say X amount of prayers or Hail Marys X amount of times a day. Not the requirement. The requirement is not that you're going to spend the rest of your life trying to measure up and pay pay for the atonement of your sins. Because quite honestly, friends, what I just listed, what kind of a system is that? Where you spend your whole life having to do X, Y, or Z, and then when you get all done, you're still not exactly sure, but maybe you've got some friends that will pray you through the other side. What kind of a system is that? And by the way, every other world religion, the world religious systems that 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 we have, every one of them, you spend your whole life trying to get it right. Trying to atone, trying to get rid of the guilt. Um, And you never really know whether you're good enough when it's all done. So I would suggest there's a better system. It's a system of grace. It's a system of mercy. It's the system of Jesus. Forgiveness is better. And the requirement is simply faith. Faith that says, I believe that when Jesus Christ died on the cross for the sins of the world, he actually was dying for my sins because I am a sinner. And that's the only answer that just explains why it is I can't get it right. Because I am flawed. Now you can say, I don't buy it. I don't buy the story because it makes me feel uncomfortable or I think it's unfair. I got it. 
But when doubt rises up in your head, that emotion that says it seems unfair or uncomfortable, just remember that something can seem unfair and be absolutely true, can make you uncomfortable and be absolutely true. And now here it's this ending statements. And God's invitation to every single person here, every single day, is this. For the rest of your life, every day, would you put your faith and your confidence in Jesus Christ? Not every day say, oh, please forgive me. No, no. But at the doctor's appointment this week, at the oncologist report, uh, doctor's office this week, would you take the invitation up and place your faith in Jesus Christ? When you're at the lawyer's office, growing through a divorce you never dreamed you'd go through, would you place your faith in Jesus Christ? That's the invitation every day. When you're paying your bills and you've got more bills than you have money, would you place your faith in Jesus Christ? When you tuck your children into bed and you say, what will they become? And, and what will this world hold for them? Would you place your faith in Jesus Christ? When you look at your adult children, some of whom are not walking with Jesus, would you place your faith in Jesus Christ? When you watch what's happening in the world and you become overwhelmed, would you put your faith in Jesus Christ? And when you're hurt by others, which happens on a regular basis, the invitation would be, would you place your faith in Jesus Christ? And when you do, you will discover the power of God's love and God's grace and his mercy and his compassion and kindness and the forgiveness and the care of your heavenly father. Lost your faith? I don't think so. I think maybe you've lost your, losing your religion, which I would say, go ahead and lose it and go grab, grab a hold of God. I'm going to ask you to stand, but look at me. Keep your eyes open and stand. Like you ought to look at me. I'll close a little differently than normal. This morning, I want to close by offering a benediction over us as a church. For all of you who have lost your faith, for all of you in this moment who might be teetering on the edge of your faith, for all of you whose faith is rock solid and you're strong, please hear this blessing as we end. May the strength of God sustain you even when you feel so weak. You don't know if you're going to go on. May the power of God preserve you when you just feel empty and have nothing left to give. May the hand of God protect you even when you feel as if you are surrounded by enemies. May the way of God direct you even when it's so gray and cloudy you can't figure out the way. And may the love of God carry you today and tonight and tomorrow and forever. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. And may you experience the grace of God every day. Amen. Go in peace.